Today on the Mishmash Podcast, my guest is Susan Medford, adjunct professor at the College of Staten Island since 1995, manual therapy certified physical therapist, and co-owner of Joint Physical Therapy in Middletown, New Jersey. Sue, thanks so much for coming by and hanging out for the podcast today. Of course, my pleasure. So, if you wouldn't mind, I would love to hear about how you got involved in the field. Well, Matt, um, when I was in high school, I volunteered at a camp for brain-injured children, which was basically children who mental retardation, Down syndrome, that sort of thing, were given a place to go for recreational opportunity. And I met a physical therapist there who worked with the kids in a camp setting. And I thought, wow, that's very interesting. I always knew I wanted to do something medical, and it introduced me to something I never knew anything about. So that's what started my interest in research into that area. That's wow. So that's that's really cool. In terms of the physical therapy that was conducted at the camp, was it in terms of like injuries or was it connected to uh, the, the cognitive side? Actually, it was connected to the physical side. Someone with Down syndrome in a certain developmental stage, they don't have the muscle control to do certain activities. So this therapist was teaching how to run, facilitating how to swim. So she was working in all the camp activities with the child. Oh, wow. Okay. So was the focus of your education then solely on physical therapy? Or did you go, you know, in a different direction first, and then eventually land there? Well, funny enough, even though I was interested in physical therapy from high school, when I entered into college, my general major needed to be the sciences if I was going to do something medical. And I had an inclination towards psychology as well. So I completed almost to the last six credits or so my psychology degree. And then I decided, no, it's definitely physical therapy. And so I continued um, and it got admitted to a physical therapy program because it's a specialized program. And then my education continued from there. Okay, so you just filled in a huge blank for me. And it explains a whole lot because I'm pretty sure I owe you for some therapy bills just from back in the uh, the physical therapy days. So <laughs> just to, to fill in uh, our, our listeners, my introduction to the world of physical therapy was with you back at sports training physical therapy back in 2013. So I had just gotten really into running and had finally hit my stride. I think I started February of that year. This was May. I, I remember it was um, Memorial Day weekend that like a dope, I broke every rule that I have when it comes to, you know, the wilderness, essentially, I went running by myself on a trail that evidently was not designed for running. And I said, Oh, that'll be all right. And I stepped on a rock that I didn't see. I heard a shotgun blast. I would have ducked if I could have, but uh, I was already crumbling to the ground. And long story short, by the time I got home, my ankle had swelled to the size of a grapefruit. It's the grossest picture I have. And a couple of months later, when it, it, it miraculously wasn't broken, but I think that also was uh, part of the problem in terms of the healing. And so a few months later, I think it was around September, uh, I came, I went to uh, Dr. Weintraub, actually. He was a sports medicine guy, and he recommended you guys and sent me over for physical therapy. And the rest is history. And it was amazing, too. See, I've always been just a, a curious person in general. Like, I like to learn about you know, different things, especially, I don't know, especially things that are cognitively challenging. And to me, physical therapy just seems like it's such a, a challenging thing to get into. Would you would you agree just from the like learning perspective? Um, it's definitely a challenge in terms of learning the thought process behind treating patients, but actually getting into the field. It's pretty direct and pretty straightforward. You have to be strong in the sciences. You are admitted, handpicked into physical therapy programs, just like going to medical school. So you must be strong in the sciences. When you get admitted to the program, then your course history is set for you. There's no choice. So 
that part is challenging. But you hit on something which is where I thought you were going, which is being a physical therapist requires mental gymnastics, trying to figure out patient problems. It's much more complicated than what it seems in some ways. Right. And I mean, obviously, we won't get into any specifics for other patients and whatnot. But but for me specifically, I think the issue was that there was a bone, a piece of bone or a bone itself in my foot that got stuck somewhere it wasn't supposed to be. I didn't even know that was possible. So I and just the it's funny to go back to that therapist portion of it, right? I was losing my mind. I thought that I was never going to be able to run again. I mean, like I was in shambles at that point. And you were just so calm and matter of fact, like, oh, I got this like this. I know exactly what it is. And I mean, it was within like one or two visits. It already seemed, you know, basically good to go. And it really wasn't that much longer before I was literally back out running. And it was two years after that, that I set my personal record of like, uh, I think it was 14 miles or something running. So that solidified my appreciation for and love of and interest in physical therapy. So thanks for that. But I think, and also too, like, understanding your patients, right? And what they need, not just in terms of the physical therapy recovery, but the mental coaching is tough. You have to learn how to push certain people. I I would assume so, right? Absolutely. Because each person has to be managed a little differently. I would say that my psychology background helped me tremendously in that area. Physical therapy schools try to address that as well. I did have some of that in my physical therapy education, but the field has grown so much that it gets neglected nowadays. And I think that that's really to the harm of the profession. We had a great course teaching us about the mental part of recovery and injury and dealing with injury. And I, I, unfortunately, I think that gets a little neglected now. So this is sort of one of those like large sweeping questions. But uh, you did say that you've been instructing since 1995 at CSI. Uh, so I have a couple questions about that. The first being, in that time since you began instructing, have you seen, a, you know, a change either in the field itself or in the way you've, you know, be, been instructing it? Wow, that is a huge question. And it's funny when I think about this, because I remember my instructors saying something probably very similar to what I'm going to say. But students have changed. And the way you instruct has changed. If you look at how the world has changed, the big determining factor is technology. When I was in physical therapy school, I hate to say this, I sound like a dinosaur, in 1986, there wasn't Google. There wasn't computer readily available. So therefore, information wasn't readily available. Nowadays, students, as you're instructing, can look something up and ask you about it. So you have to be more on your toes, not that you don't always have to be on your toes, but they hold you to it. Um, And how they learn is different. You know, before we wrote everything, now we have technology to assist. There's plenty of students who are uh, taking notes on a tablet or not taking notes at all and listening and recording. And it's just very different, the level of information that's available. I'm curious about that, too, in the sense of, again, to to make a, a sort of sweeping declaration here, right? I feel like the overall, at least in terms of America, right, the overall ability to retain information maybe has gone down in a casual sense because of the surfeit of information that's out there. People don't remember things anymore because it's at their fingertips. And I I would imagine it may not affect your students specifically only because you said it's such a stringent set of requirements to get into the program that they have to be a certain caliber. But do you feel like, let's say in the last five to 10 years, the cohort of students that you've taught in that stretch, 
do they differ in terms of their either recallability or anything, you know, in terms of remembering information because of the technology? I would say that there's two parts to that. I am a little bit of a rebel in this sense. I still insist my students write. I'm trying very hard to hold them to it. There's been great research that shows that actual handwriting information helps us to store it better in our brains. Students are resistant to that because it's too easy to just type. And that does not help us with information in the same way. So I think you've hit on something very important and something that we need to investigate as a society, really. It's not just unique to physical therapy. The other problem that I'm seeing is with, with recall of information is the problem-solving ability. Not really sure where this came from. If you think about the fact in the last couple of years we had COVID and students were learning in a very different way, they weren't in a question and answer type of scenario, I think the retention did change. It's it was, I saw my test scores go down. And that was more from COVID related, maybe. I'm not really sure. It's just that the learning has changed in there. And I can't understand why in the last three years, my overall test scores have skewed downwards versus where they were before. Always a high percentage of the grade A student. Now I'm giving more B's than I ever have before. So I'm not sure what fully explains that. I would imagine COVID would have to have some sort of impact there. And full disclosure, before I say what I'm about to say, you've been an employee for the City University of New York since 1995, right? I am a graduate of Baruch College from the class of 2005, the Macaulay Honors Program, same year. And then I earned my master's from Brooklyn College in 2009. So clearly a little bit biased when it comes to CUNY. But I remember keeping in the loop during the peak COVID, I would say between, you know, March of 2020, and let's say the end of 21, or maybe even more up to March of 22. CUNY was very, I felt proactive in the way that they were trying to figure out the best solutions for things trying to maintain, you know, the same level of educational quality in the coursework and whatnot. And I actually encountered a student of yours during that stretch, when she was interning at another program. And which so funny, the number of students of yours that I have met at physical therapy is is really funny. And I can almost pick them out just by listening to them in the first 60 seconds, like the, <laughs> the, the way they carry themselves. It's it's pretty funny. But th- this student in particular, you know, she was telling us about like the, the different things. I think I don't know if, if you had class outside at some point. Is that accurate? Absolutely. So you are very right. CUNY was very responsive to the physical therapy program. We would have had to shut down if they were not willing to work with what we needed. We're a hands-on profession. We're a hands-on instruction, right? We do hands-on teaching. So what they did was they moved all of our tables outside into a place where we had a roof. We didn't have walls, so it was open air, but we had a roof at least. So if it rained, you know, we were cut, we shielded from the rain. The campus was closed except for us. There was no other students on campus, but we were outside able to do our instruction on these tables. It was very interesting as the wildlife took over the campus, but there was us and the wildlife. I think people outside of New York, at least, or at least outside of Staten Island, don't realize the sheer diversity of wildlife on the island. And I think they're awfully surprised to see the the sheer number of deer that are there. I was definitely surprised myself. The deer were freely roaming the campus, the deer, the Canadian geese, some beavers. It was amazing what we saw. I remember a few years ago, there was this video that went viral of deer swimming from either Perth Amboy or South Amboy over to Staten Island. And uh, it's funny, that was the the initial reaction. I think I was living on Staten Island at the time. 
And the initial reaction was shock from, you know, people from Brooklyn or wherever that there were deer on the island. But then the majority of people then followed up with not realizing that deer could swim like that, I guess. Because that that's a pretty good distance. Yeah, that is a pretty good distance. Funny you mentioned that. I actually saw that myself and had the same kind of reaction like, wow, there's deer on the island. I've been working there forever. But yeah, it was pretty funny. So and th- this branches more, I guess, into the personal side of it. But how did you wind up at CSI? Because you did, did you ever live in Staten Island or what, what, is there a story there? Uh, so, yeah, um, what happened was when I graduated physical therapy school, I went to school at Hunter College in Manhattan. And one of my instructors was the chief therapist at Staten Island University Hospital. When CSI was planning to open a physical therapy program, that person was heavily involved in the creation of the program. And so they were looking for instructors. They had personal knowledge of me. I had been a therapist at that point for about six, maybe seven years. And they approached me and said, we know that you're strong in this area. Would you be interested in teaching one class? Well, that's how they get you, right? I started with one class and then wound up with four classes. Oh, my goodness. And that's so how large is a given class? Unless it varies between, you know, the the subject matter. Once a class enters as a cohort into the program, they stay together. The maximum amount is 25. We vary from 20 to 25. We accept candidates with specific criteria, and we will accept less if, if we can't find what meets the criteria. Now, I referenced uh, having encountered some of your students in the past. Have you ever had an opportunity to re-meet your students down the road, either uh, through an interning situation uh, at, at, your per- at your practice, or even perhaps hiring them and working with them as professionals once they graduate? I've had great experiences with past students. It's teaching is something you do because you love it. And one of the things I really enjoy is meeting my two students after the fact to see what their journey's been like. Just recently, a current patient of mine said to me, my brother was your former student. And I said, okay. And he said the name. And at first it didn't, I didn't recall the name, but I found out he was year one of my teaching. So from 1995, I didn't remember the name, but once I saw a picture, I remembered the person. And so that's been very interesting, but I've been very fortunate in able, being able to employ a a bunch of my students. What better job interview is there than when you see how they perform through their college life or whether they did a residency or an internship with you. So it's been, it's been amazing. The other great experience I had not that long ago, maybe two years ago, a student came to me and said, you're the reason I'm a physical therapist. I didn't know him. I said, why? <laughs> what did I have to do with it? And he said, you treated my girlfriend who was suffering from transverse myelitis. She was a patient at the Staten Island University Hospital where I was a therapist. And he said, I watched you with her. And of course, I didn't remember him. And then he brought me pictures of the two of them. And I said, oh, you were her boyfriend. And at that point, he was now her husband. So that was a pretty remarkable story for me. Oh, wow. So have you ever performed physical therapy at in the hospital setting? Or is that, I always forget, is that inpatient versus outpatient? So I started in Staten Island University Hospital. And why I did that, and I often used to suggest to students, it's a good place to start, is you get all the experiences. So inpatient rehabilitation, where you're specifically there for rehabilitation, an outpatient department. I used to work in the amputee clinic of Staten Island Hospital. So you have a varied experience, but I learned quickly after being in rehab, I give all the kudos to them, but it wasn't for me. And I said, well, outpatient therapy for me. And two years into my professional life, that's where I've been ever since. 
Wow. And I think it's important, regardless of the profession that you're in, to understand what works for you and what doesn't. Because I think the more in tune you are with that, the more successful you'll be. And the better off your patients, your clients, whatever you know it, it happens to be is good. Because for me, I knew when I went into teaching that I wanted to work either with the youngest kids or more importantly, the oldest kids in high school. <laughs> I knew middle school was the cesspool <laughs> that I wanted to avoid uh, at all costs. And I think that primed me for success. And with physical therapy, it's just, it's, I'm always amazed at the sheer diversity of knowledge that you need to have. And really, I, I guess that's any medical, uh, med any medical field, but you also need to be able to know how to handle those. And you mentioned, I mentioned earlier about the manual certification. Can you talk a little bit about the methodology that you use in terms of treating people? So, sure. And just a, one side note, when I went into physical therapy, I told you I had been at a camp for brain injured children. I came into physical therapy to be a pediatric therapist to work with kids. I learned that that was not for me. And as I said, I went into orthopedic physical therapy. And specifically, what one of the things I loved was the instant gratification of manual therapy. And by that, I mean, I could affect change very easily with my hands, nothing more than that. So my route with manual therapy was I learned that from some of my instructors I had in school, I really appreciated what they did. I saw them work on other people and have great results. So I knew that I needed to learn that. So I entered a specialized program for a manual therapy certification. So a very wise professor once said to me, every joint problem you have is a soft tissue problem. And so we need to affect the soft tissue. So everyone thinks that manual therapy is massage. And that's not what it is. It's much more than that. And so I believe in working on soft tissue, working on the things that connect bones together to help that move better. So my philosophy is working on that. And of course, exercise and mechanical training is all part of it. But I think the hands-on therapy is the part that makes the most difference. Right. And the interconnectedness of all of it, of, of just the body in general, I think makes it a fascinating approach to take too, because... I just remembered one of the issues that I had come in with another running related one. <laughs> there, there's a, a quick funny story coming from this. So at one point, my kneecap started like sliding around, which I didn't think was a good thing and didn't know was a possible thing. And I'm freaking out. I've always just had this being such uh, an avid basketball fan in general. I'm always terrified of anything with a CL at the end of it, you know? <laughs> and so I, I and just being a catastrophist, I always assumed, you know, the worst and whatnot. And I remember it, it wound up being like a quadricep tendon issue. There was something where it was pull, like the something in the quad was pulling the kneecap out of the track. And I remember thinking like, obviously, I trusted your, you know, your assessment, but I was surprised because my quad felt fine or quote unquote fine. And sure enough, you know, th that manipulation of a different area resolved the problem in the problem area. So I can definitely attest to the, to, to the success of that. The problem for me was, and, and in terms of that, you, you said you, you're able to kind of put your hands on a problem and fix it. I guess I started taking it for granted at one point because I was just like, well, Sue's so good. And, and everybody that you had working with you, I, I trusted too. But you were so good in particular. I was like, I got reckless with my running and stuff because I was like, ah, you know what? I can keep pushing that extra mile or two because if I screw something up, I'll just pop in. You know, she'll take a look under the hood, get it rectified, and I'll be back out running. And <laughs> that was a stupid decision on my part. But it does speak to your shaman-like abilities to harken back to that uh, pre-on-the-air pre discussion. <laughs> so 
I, I just to dovetail onto that, Matt, what, one of the things I teach is the interconnectedness of the body. You hit on exactly the major point of my focus of teaching, that what happens at your foot affects your knee. What happens at your knee affects your hip. If you come in with a foot problem, it doesn't necessarily mean that's where the problem started. So sometimes we have to look at your hip. And, you know, sometimes patients look at you and it doesn't make sense at first, but when you take the time to explain it and, and make them understand how things influence each other, and then when you show them the change, um, obviously then you have, a, you have a committed patient at that point. So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely an important point. You got to see the benefit of that. And that's my focus in teaching is to teach that to students to really look at the body as a whole versus just a, a body part that walks into your door. Right. And I think I connected to that innately, connected to your mentality with that innately, because that's the same approach I employ when it comes to parenting and to teaching. My first real teaching job was instructing SAT prep for math and, and English for the, the two sides of the test. And I remember I was given, I came in late to the program, so they had already assigned everyone. And I was given the opportunity to choose to work with either the AP level students or the kids who could barely write their name. And it was an interesting moment for me because my background in education has always been with the honors class. I, I never even realized, like, I remember in high school at graduation, I, you know, for four years, I was with the same 80, 85 kids between all the classes and whatnot. I found out that there were 691 kids in our graduating class. And that was like kind of an eye-opening thing. I'm like, I don't even, I wouldn't even recognize, you know, the major, more than 600 of these kids. And so when I was given that opportunity with the uh, SAT program, I said, no, I think I could help. I would rather help the other kids get, you know, a few hundred points on their tests than the AP kids get, you know, the 10 more that they need or whatever. But it came with its own set of challenges because clearly the students at that end of the spectrum had different challenges and different issues in terms of learning. And so for me, the mindset that I took was, okay, I need to get them to hear, but I can't start at the next node down. I need to find a place that, a point of entry basically, and find some, I guess, common, common ground or whatever that I can use to get them to understand the concept and then work my way forward from there. So teaching is always interesting to navigate and, and how to make things real for a student and how to make an impression. Um, so yeah, I really relate to what you're saying about that. And but you made me think also when I teach, one of the things I teach, one of the ways that I teach is through patient problems. So if you're ever a problem, a patient of mine, you may wind up as a, as a teaching tool. So patients would recognize themselves in my stories, and that has happened as well, where I'll teach by presenting a patient case. Obviously, no personal information, but the characteristics of the case, I give all the information. Not that long ago, one of my students was on an internship in a hospital she was working with a physical therapist who happened to be a friend of mine and one of my famous patient stories. In talking to that therapist, she started to realize, wait a minute, I think I know this story because that therapist shared her story with the student. And, I, and she said, oh my gosh, I'm one of the stories in the classroom, right? And she said, yes, you are. And it was just a very funny experience to have one of the students recognize one of my patient stories. Yeah, that's great. And, and again, right, to, talking back to that comment about finding common ground, I think it's just a great tool in general, you know, to, to use mm -hmm. interpersonally, whether, or, or if you're in like a, an employer-employee situation. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't do. 
it takes extra effort, right? So when it comes to parenting, for me, I take, again, that same approach. If I'm out at the playground with the kids and I say, all right, we're leaving at five o'clock and I notice that it's 5.02, I'm not going to just yank them and say, all right, it's time to go. That's on me. That's not on them. I want to have a nice rest of my evening. And so when they were littler, I would say, all right, guys, five minutes, you know, then we're going to leave. And then 30 seconds later, you know, wow, it was a quick five minutes. Let's go. You know, they don't know the difference, but it's again, sort of anticipating potential problem scenarios and then finding a way to mitigate that instead of just reacting and, and going through it. That, that is pretty funny though. So wait, so the, uh, that student recognized themselves. They were previously a patient. No, the student reckon the therapist who was, who was guiding that student shared her personal story about an injury she had. And the, my student recognized the story from me teaching that story. Uh, okay. Gotcha. Right. I use stories to illustrate points and so the student recognized the story uh, hopefully if i've ever popped up i wasn't just the idiot that kept hurting himself out uh pushing it too hard on the the running track there <laughs> um well so in terms of personal stories one of the other things that i've always been interested in is y- you have such a great rapport with all of your patients and every time i was fortunate enough to be there with you it was just such a great environment it was laid back but in such a professional setting like it 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 was disarming is the best way I could put it. You you forgot that you were in like a medical setting and, you know, with, with the exception of the few guys that I remember uh, having knee adjustments and shoulder work, that was a whole separate thing. But how early on did you make that a point of emphasis? Because I would imagine that's not by accident that, that you ran the practice that way. Okay, so you're 100% correct. And I really appreciate that you recognized that atmosphere in, in my office. Once again, I have to point to a mentor and a mentor once said to me that, think about it, Sue, if a patient has to be in a place two or three times a week, do they want to be miserable? Do you want them to not enjoy the experience in in the best possible way? Because it's not enjoyable to have to go to someplace two or three times a week to rehabilitate a problem. Let's face it, life gets in the way. Everybody has things going on. So that atmosphere is important. It helps the patient look forward to coming. It makes therapy more successful because it puts them at ease, someone who may be nervous about the process. So I've always wanted to have that kind of atmosphere. Personally, it makes me happy as well. So if I'm happy, then hopefully that bleeds over into into the patient experience as well. So I've always looked to employ positive people, people who are outgoing in the sense that they're willing to engage with people. I don't need, you know, somebody who's over the top and something like that, but just somebody who's willing to engage and talk and be interested in life. And that that goes a long way for patients. And I've always taken pride in the fact that people come back time after time and say, I really enjoyed being in your office. Your staff is wonderful. That kind of thing. Yesterday I had a patient stop in who I haven't seen in about seven years. He moved out of the area, but he made a point to come. He looked me up because I'm not in the same location to come and find me and thank me and to compliment the staff that had been with me at that time, which was amazing. That's what makes it all great, honestly. That's so that's so great. And, and it's funny too, right? Again, speaking to the environment you created, there aren't many other, actually, there aren't any other places that when I was finished with the engagement in a professional setting, I still came back on Halloween just to check out the, uh, you know, costume contest, which was great. And, and back in my, you know, less healthy eating days, I even made a buddy from, from the office for, uh, for some White Castle uh, <laughs> guy time, right. which was great. So from the personal side of things, one of the things that I enjoyed the most was getting to chat with you during the sessions. Because obviously, you know, it's, it's a while that you're there. It's not like a quick five-minute thing. And so you do have to engage with people and stuff, and you are very engaging. And 
I was just always interested in the fact that you have family from where? My father's from Grenada and my mother was from England. A very interesting combination. Yeah. Can, can, are you willing to share some of the stories from that? or? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, my uh, my dad is from Grenada, which nobody ever heard of when I was a child. But of course, Grenada is a small island in the Caribbean, which everybody got to know when we actually had a conflict there. Grenada is a beautiful small island. And I've always, I've traveled there virtually every year of my life. And I always share those. I, I think that's just part of conversation. You share trips and vacations and whatnot. And people find Grenada so interesting. Number one, they'd never heard of it. And uh, and just, it's something different and exotic to talk about. No slight to my English side of my family. It's just a little more commonplace than Grenada is, a little more exotic. So yeah, I love to go to Grenada. I get there every year, usually in January, to uh, to see the family and to enjoy the beaches and all that great stuff. That's great. Is it closer to the northern sh- shores of South America, or is it further up in the Caribbean? It's 19 miles north of Venezuela. It is. Okay. Yeah. Very small island, 12 miles wide, 21 miles long. And it's volcanic, so it's a very a pretty island. So when you're there, is it just like a beach vacation? Or do you have like, is there like sightseeing, touristy sort of stuff to do? Oh, for sure. There's, I mean, I think the claim to fame now is that we have a medical school there, right? There's a, there's a medical school that a lot of uh, doctors now, it's become more and more recognized. We have a lot of doctors in this area that are from the St. George Medical School. But there's beautiful waterfalls. If you're a hiker, the hiking in Grenada is amazing. I often shy away from it myself. I'm afraid of breaking my ankle or my hand um, so that I wouldn't be able to work. But um, the island is known as the Isle of Spice. So there's spice making production. It is has exclusive chocolate that's favored in the world that I understand. Um, so they have chocolate making facilities. There's all kinds of things that are interesting in Grenada. And in terms of the uh, adult beverage side of things, because oh, clearly that's that's one of my go-tos. Is there a distinctive uh, brand of beer and then a specific type of drink that's popular there? So it's rum. <laughs> Caribbean is rum. And some of the rum that's in Grenada is outstanding. When I was young, I won't say how young, going to Grenada and sampling rum, it was not so craftsmanship. There was not the craftsmanship that there is today. There's a rum that that I bought in Grenada recently that was a high-end rum, and it was fantastic. And I thought, wow, look at where Grenada has come. Um, so uh, Clark's Court is a big brand in Grenada, and Westerhall. Those are just local brands of rum that you really can't get here. It's just local distilled and there's a distillery in Grenada that would make your hair stand on it if you saw it. It is run like it was in the 1700s. Oh, my goodness. Crazy. Like a water wheel kind of situation. So it's really interesting. Yeah, it's funny how a lot of... Uh, I have um, friends who always go to Grand Cayman or Cayman. Uh, and so now I'm blanking on that beer brand. But I know it's like each island seems to have its own go-to one. About two or three years ago, they opened a, the West Indian Distillery Company in Grenada. Um, so then now they're brewing on the islands, uh, some local, some local brews. So, but I know they bring in everything else imported, but it's interesting to see that they finally opened a, uh, a brewery, which is great. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely reaching out beyond, I mean, I remember when we moved here in 2012, I could count the number of breweries in the state of New Jersey and we tried to make it all to all of them. Now forget about it. It's just, it's absurd how many there are. Yeah. They're everywhere. They're exploding, which is it's really interesting, but the other thing that's also happening, which again, as a, I love beer, but rum, 
there's rum distilleries opening up. There's one that opened in Belford not that long ago. Really? Oh. And it was fantastic. I just tried it recently. See, I love, uh, again, I, I guess it's, I can't sit still in terms of like a palate situation. Like if I have the same thing too often, it just, I always have to find something new or some adjustment. And I love beers, especially stouts that have been aged in rum casks, Ooh. but also certain whiskeys that are aged in rum casks. It's just, again, I, I, I just love the diversity of it. It, it enhances things. It, it builds complexity. And so I find that really interesting. I don't know why, for some reasons, rum, if I try to re- drink it just, you know, on, on its own, it winds up affecting my stomach in the same way that wine does. And I know th- there's sulfites in, in wine that obviously is in, in, um, in rum, but I'm wondering if it's maybe some, something with the sugar cane or whatever, but I love rum and rum, rum seems to love me. So that's okay. Um, so you, you mentioned avoiding the hiking because of your, uh, not wanting to break your hand. Those are the money makers, right? I'm curious. I mean, I've watched, you must rip phone books in half just for fun <laughs> after, you know, eight, 10, 12 hours of working on people. How do you manage to navigate the physical strain and toll, uh, you know, for, forget about the, the psycho- psychological toll of the job. That's a funny question. I get asked that question a lot because I do work 13 hour days, which is a lot, but I'm just adapted to it because I've been doing it for almost my entire career. But I'll tell you what the best investment I ever made was a hot tub. I do a lot of stretching and the hot tub kind of just takes some of the muscle uh, tightness away and and I just keep going. I've been blessed maybe with good genetics in that sense. And so like throughout the day, do you find yourself having to, to stretch at all? Or is it more just like once the day is done, then you kind of cool down a little bit? So there's two things. One is I don't necessarily stretch because I feel tight. I just know that I'm counteracting what I'm doing. So that's like everything in life. So if I'm leaning forward all the time, I make sure I lean backward. Another thing back to a mentor, that mentor told me, When you wash your hands, because obviously we do it 90,000 times a day, wash your hands in cold water. So every day when I'm washing my hands after every patient, I wash my hands in ice cold water because I I think the ice kind of helps the inflammation factor. So I think it's protected my hands. I really have no trouble with my hands after 35 years of really using them in my profession. And I would imagine in terms of the challenges, right? Because again, 13 hours, oh my, I, I can't imagine just relaxing for 13 hours, <laughs> let alone doing what you do. There must be the emotional psychological challenge of dealing with, because again, no matter how great the environment is that you set up, invariably there are going to be difficult patients. So there's the emotional, you know, psychological drain, the physical drain of, you know, especially uh, I, I would imagine certain injuries are more manually intensive than others, but correct me if I'm wrong. I'm guessing that the biggest challenge, the most frustrating thing is when you're not on the clock and you're at a party and someone comes up to you and says, oh, you're a physical therapist. Hey, can you check this out? Does that happen at all? Or um, All the time. <laughs> but, and this is what I always say. I said, if I could, they'll say, they'll put something in front of me, say, I have knee pain. Why is that? I'll say, if I could look at you and say, your knee pain is that without doing anything else, I'd be a millionaire. So obviously I need to do an examination, which takes uh, quite a bit of time. I set aside 45 minutes to do an examination to really thoroughly investigate a problem. I wish I could walk up to somebody in a party and say, you have knee pain because, and that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, you'd be uh, much, much richer from, uh, again, with a, a lot less work there. That's for sure. So uh, in terms of just a general way to close things out, what would you say the best part of the job is and the worst part? Not necessarily in a challenging sense, but just something that, you know, doesn't doesn't do it for you, I guess. Okay, so the best part of the job, 
it's why you do the job is because I love people and I love helping people. We always joke about when you get admitted to physical therapy school, the question they ask you is, why do you want to be a physical therapist? And everyone always says, because I want to help people. And we laugh about it, but that's the truth. Like, that's what keeps me in it. I want to help people. I want to see them get better and help them do whatever it is they want to do. And that is gratifying for me that I've been able to help somebody on their journey, whatever it is, to play baseball better, to work, to be a mom, whatever it takes. On the negative side of the job, every physical therapist will answer this question, I'm sure, with the same exact answer. Documentation, paperwork, worst part of the job. And it has gotten exponentially worse since I become a therapist. We started, I used to write on triplicate paper, that tells you how old I am, to, to write a note. I had to handwrite it through triplicate paper. And now as a therapist, great, I get to type it, but the demands on the amount of paperwork in order to get paid for the job is just overwhelming. I have a friend who just started his own business. It's a power washing business. And we were, I hadn't seen him in a while. So I was asking him like how it was going and stuff. And he, it's funny because he said the actual work was a breeze. He had no problem with it whatsoever. What he didn't anticipate being challenging was answering phone calls, getting back to people at nine, 10 o'clock at night, you know, dealing with complaints, dealing with all those different things. I would imagine that the red tape that you have to deal with in terms of insurance companies and just all that kind of stuff must be so enervating because I know just from our side, my wife and I like just handling, you know, typical things is, is stressful. I really believe that the, the insurance companies nowadays, they feel that their job is to find a way to not pay a claim or to delay it the, the, as long as possible um, and to make you jump through hoops to, for very little. Um, patients think that they have a benefit and it, that it would just be handed over to us but it's not. We have to jump through hoops for it many and sometimes jump through the hoops over and over again for the same one. So yeah, it's very frustrating. And this was something I had meant to, to ask earlier in the conversation. But part of the reason why I've been delving into these topics is because there's such a, an emphasis in the school system now on STEM and STEAM, but specifically with trying to introduce young women to the sciences. I guess one question I would have is, do you feel like physical therapy is like a 50-50 field in terms of men and women representation? Does it skew more to the female side or the male side? Or Good question. In the beginning of physical therapy, it, it evolved out of rehab nursing. So it was very female dominant for a very long time, um, more in the rehab sense, hospital setting. In the late 80s, early 90s, it got identified, it became much more popular. And the sports aspect of rehab became more prominent. And so therefore, it attracted more males. So I would say nowadays, we're pretty much in a 50-50 scenario. But when I was in physical therapy school for perspective, we were a class of 40. It was 30 women, 10 men. Wow. It's... It was something I was just talking with my kids about recently, uh, and I think I mentioned it in at least one, if not two, recent podcast episodes, where I feel like if you go up to the average elementary school kid and said, all right, draw me a doctor and draw me a nurse, I feel like when I was a kid, 100%, I would have drawn a male doctor and a female nurse. I'm not sure if that's necessarily the case now, but... I, I guess it would have to just be because of the caring professions, right? In the sense that physical therapy, nursing, elementary school teaching, those are professions that stereotypically skew towards, you know, a, a more, I don't want to say feminine role, but it's definitely something where you need to have that emotional intelligence that I don't think men are typically, you know, attributed with. But 
in my experience, like, again, I, I, it's basically been like a 50, 50 split because when I was a, a patient of yours, there were at least as many guys working there as, as women. So I think it's great that, I mean, ideally, right. Most things are going to be a 50, 50 split in the optimal circumstance. So I think that's good if, if that's where it's at. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that that a lot of professions have gone down that road and that, and that's fantastic. And to what your point about what you said about STEM I think what's sometimes surprising to students who discover physical therapy is how much science they need to know. So the sciences started for me immediately. I mean, I was always interested in high school, but immediately when I went into college, I was interested. You have to take biology, you have to take chemistry, physics, all part of your physical therapy education pre, before you get into the program. And I think more females now are going into that. Um, so that they're set up for it. Otherwise, you don't want to wake up three years into your college life and say, oh, I need to take all these science classes in order to do this profession I want. So thankfully, I think that's that's changed a bit. Yeah. And I, I love seeing so many women in the field. And I, I don't have a problem working with either. But I think I've connected better with a lot of the female therapists that I've worked with. Because it's not just the the caring aspect. Like it's, it really is the intellectual side of it. Like I'm, I, I guess I just have an easier time maybe asking questions or learning because again, I mentioned that like natural curiosity and I just, I hate that historically, at least in this country, there's been that like misogynistic patriarchal view of women not being worthy of intellectual stuff, which obviously is a load of crap, but historically speaking, I feel like a lot of those fields, you know, a doctor was a man because a man has, you know, the intelligence and whatnot and a nurse, well, she's just there to help the, the doctor. And so in a physical therapy setting, like, no, it, I, it's, it's so evident that the women who are working there have that intellectual ability in spades because they need to, they, they can't, they can't function as successful therapists without having gone through, you know, the schooling without having that uh, ability and adaptability, which I think is maybe one of the, the most critical qualities for a successful therapist. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Oh yeah. Well, I definitely think so. Just to two things. One is in order to get into physical therapy school, your GPA has to be so high. You know, they, they take the bottom level at 3.2, but 3.5 and above is most of who gets admitted into PT school. I mean, there's 4.0 sometimes that we turn down. But what uh, about the characteristics of, of therapists? I think that being able to multitask because you're thinking in all different directions when you're with a patient, maybe that plays to a more female strength. If you look at historically, women are juggling 50,000 things at once when they were traditional caretakers and juggling children, running around and whatever. So maybe that mindset is one of the characteristics that helps females. I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. Right. I think. Listen. Uh, you know, I try to view everyone equally and treat everyone equally. But obviously, there's no shortage of intellectual ability on on the female side. But there definitely is in in most cases, or at least some cases, the enhanced emotional intelligence, which I mentioned before. And I think, like you said, like it's so important. And I think a lot of it is the feminine side is more. Not introverted, uh, introspective is the word I'm looking for. There's a lot of self-analysis. There's being in tune with feelings and understanding things, you know. And again, I think in a field like this, it's so critical. And same thing with teaching. Like, I, I feel like you could list, you know, a dozen uh, professions where it's a benefit to have that kind of strength. And again, you can have it as a male or a female, but predominantly that is something I would ascribe more to the feminine than the masculine. And maybe that's the changes we're seeing now in society that, that we're not thinking 
thinking of traits as so male and female, which we have in the past, but recognize that anybody could have those traits. It's just how you develop them and how society encourages you to, to develop them. Right. Exactly. The environment, it's what nurture versus nature, right? And Correct. so there's, uh, again, I'm always sort of a middle ground guy. And so I can't think of any one thing existing in isolation. It, it's all a factor together. And it is, I guess I hadn't factored that in the fact that there is a societal shift, at least in the general discourse, if not, you know, because clearly not everywhere in the country, you know, experiences things the exact same way. And, you know, there's other factors and stuff too. My one selfish question that I was wondering without going into any specifics, obviously in terms of patients is, are there any memorable conditions or situations that you either were surprised by when you were treating them or stand out as being especially challenging? Like, wow, I can't believe I just helped this person with this issue or, or something that was just like completely caught you by surprise. Wow. Now I'm running through 35 years of cases in my head to think what's the most interesting. If I can give you kind of a, a cop-out answer first, it yeah. is, I still find all of it interesting. Now let's be honest. There are certain things that are super simple for me. If you come in, you turned your ankle. That's pretty easy for me after 35 years. There's usually not a lot of surprises, but I'm always on my guard because every time you think an ankle sprain's easy, then you have one that isn't easy because of something else, because something's wrong somewhere else in their body. So that's probably my cop-out answer. If I was going to say something very interesting, there are strange things that happen that you don't realize physical therapy can affect. For instance, somebody who came to me with a jaw problem was having problems because of something that happened in their neck because of a dental procedure. In working with that person for a while, I suggested something to them, recognizing some other symptoms that I thought were associated with Lyme disease. And I directed them to get further evaluation. And sure enough, this person turned out to have Lyme disease for many years that had gone undetected and accounted for all the symptoms I couldn't account for. There were symptoms that I knew I could treat as a therapist, but things that had gone on for many years. And now that person's doing extremely well because the Lyme disease is being managed. So that kind of thing for me is fantastic because I was able to help that person make a huge change in their life. That's so wild. And it, you just headed off the next question that I had, which was so many times, you know, with television, I've seen stories mostly with ESPN, I guess, because that's just how they air that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But like, the, you know, somebody will see a fan on, at a hockey game and they'll see like a growth or something and know that it's cancerous or whatever. And so I, I guess I was going to ask, have you ever had an instance like that? I guess you did with, with that particular patient where... They come in for one thing and you're able to diagnose something completely unrelated that they then need to go and get treated or, or worked with. That's happened to me a, a few times. Um, and again, I also teach my students to look out for that. I had an instance where I was treating someone and the signs and symptoms didn't add up. There were certainly things that could be addressed physical therapy. But one of the, one of the ones that stands out to me was the person had, sadly, a liver condition that had gone undetected. But all the telltale signs were there, and they were not a doctor person, as they put it. And then I asked them that you really need to go see a physician. And it turned out to be liver cancer. So it was really a tough one, but at least they were able to get the care that they needed um, at that point. Um, it was just going on way too long. And again, they I don't know if they would have sought that help out if they had not been pushed into it from, from my examination. Well, thank you so much for giving up all of this 
amazing time. This was such a great discussion. Uh, on the way out here, I do have to tap into one more area of expertise because we've just recently added a new member to our family here. And I know that one of your big passions is puppies. And so do you, do you have any <laughs> advice? Because uh, you can't see it off air, but I'm, I'm demonstrating signs of it. I guess it's called puppy love, but if you look at my hand, I would call it domestic violence. That seems like a more apt thing. So any advice for the neophyte uh, puppy owner here? Okay, my real advice is don't do anything that I did except for this. I've spoiled my dogs terribly. I, I swore they're never going to sleep in bed with me. She, he broke me after six weeks and he was on the bed because um, I wasn't sleeping at night. But the one thing that I will say that really did a great job when they're teething and doing what I just saw in your hands... Uh, frozen green beans. Oh, frozen green beans help them when they're teething. They seem to like them that and cold carrots, but frozen green beans is a good, a good one for them to gnaw on. Yeah. At this point, it, as long as it's not the couch, the stairs, <laughs> the furniture, or literally anything else. I did see something about ice cubes and it, the, the advice was, Oh, don't give, don't give the, the puppy ice cubes because it could crack their teeth. And I'm looking at this dog chewing on the, the granite outside <laughs> the metal for, you know, all this stuff. I'm like, <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I never and that's the funny thing with the puppy love portion of it right nobody they tell you it's like having a newborn or or whatever they don't tell you it's at, that when they go through like the teething stuff that it's like having a tasmanian devil in the house perfect description oh my god like a tornado of teeth <laughs> she gets me i mean it's it really is remar <laughs> remarkable it's unbelievable but I, i'll tell you this i guess a, from i got bit by a dog once when i was littler not that I was scared of dogs ever since, but just the experience with Vendetta for the last two weeks, I'm not afraid of getting bit anymore because, <laughs> I mean, she's gotten me, as again, you could see, she's gotten me good. But before we go too far off, uh, I wanted to thank you for coming on as a podcast guest, but also personally as your patient. So you mentioned about helping people with their journeys and stuff. And one of the biggest struggles that I've gone through is overall fitness level, nutrition, uh, body image, all kinds of stuff. And I hit my lowest point in February of 2013. And that was when <laughs> I had spent a couple of months hearing these moms. I mentioned this a couple of times, but they were talking about the couch to 5k run program to help shed the baby weight. And I've looked down at myself and I was like, well, I look like I'm about seven or eight months in, uh, I, I got to give this a go. And so I finally started to make changes back then. And what, by the time I got to May, I was in such great spirits. I felt great for the first time. And when that ankle popped, that wasn't just a shotgun blast, you know, resounding through the forest. It felt like I got shot right in the heart because I thought that it was a wrap. And all the all the hopes I had and all the plans moving forward, I just saw them disappear in a cloud of dust. And then a couple of months later, a couple of really dark, challenging months later, I met you and you got me back on the path, literally back on my feet. And uh, I can never thank you enough for that because it sent me off to where I am today, which is a much, much better place than uh, than 10 years. Oh, my God. 10 years ago, almost. Holy um, and I am just a drop in the bucket in terms of the people that you've helped, the lives that you've touched. And whether it's your patients, your students, your employees, we all appreciate you so much and value your mentorship and your friendship, I guess, above everything else. So thank you so much, Sue, for coming by, for hanging out with me today. And uh, I hope it was a good time for you because I definitely enjoyed myself. Absolutely, Matt. This was great. I can't tell you how much it, it means to me to hear the words from you. I'm always, you know, doing this profession is something I love. 
but hearing how other people feel about it is just everything to me. So thank you so much. Yeah, it, it literally is life-changing in the way that few things are. So thank you again, and thank you to everybody listening wherever and whenever you are. <laughs>